Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18 down to verse 30. This is what God's word says. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or a wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would now open our minds and hearts and that you would soften our hearts that we might receive the truth that you have spoken for us by your Spirit as recorded by your servant Luke, as he testifies of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Help us to hear the words of Christ by faith. We ask this in his name. Amen. If you've been with us throughout our study of the gospel according to Luke, you've probably noticed, as it is with any of the four Gospels, just how often Jesus addresses the issue of wealth and the love of money. And it's not because there is something holy or virtuous about poverty, as though Jesus' main objective was to get his followers to become poor, but it's because there's something particularly dangerous to the soul when it comes to being rich and having an abundance of possessions. And so the frequency of Jesus' warning against earthly riches is only being proportional to the potency of its temptation. And that peculiar danger is this, that all too often, for those who possess much wealth, is really the case that their wealth possesses them. That riches and abundance of possessions have the unique ability of not just being passive temptations that lie along the path which one must avoid stepping on, but as almost active agents that seek to take captive one's mind and heart and exercise control over one's life and thinking. Which is why Jesus said so often, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God. And money, as though money were a master. He didn't say that about adultery. He didn't say that about violence. 
or even drunkenness. But money can be like a master that subdues and rules over men and women. And it's for this reason that being rich can be one of the greatest hindrances to entering God's kingdom. Not because God discriminates against wealthy people, but because the wealthy often already have a king that they serve and a kingdom to which they've already sworn allegiance is the God of money and the kingdom of their earthly treasures. And so they are unable to enter the kingdom of God because they are in the bondage of unwillingness to enter it. And this was the case for this rich young ruler. Indeed, he was rich. And indeed, he was a young man, as Matthew tells us in his parallel account. He was rich and he was young. But a ruler, he was not. Sure, by occupation. Sure, by social status. But in fact, he was ruled by his riches. He was a slave to his money, so much so that he was unable to let it go for the sake of gaining Christ, and so he walked away. Church, this tragic account is a warning for us to not underestimate the hidden love of money operating within all of our hearts. And too often we do underestimate it. And too often we want to downplay our love of money in all kinds of ways, which you'll see is exactly what this man tried to do. But this morning we must humbly receive God's loving warning and lay bare our hearts before him, asking him to search our hearts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. And that is where he will lead us. Because this passage is not only a warning, but a reassurance of his promises to awaken us to see the true riches that are in Christ alone. How much better it is to live for the kingdom of God and to be willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. Because in the end, we will have given up nothing, but only gained everything. That's gospel truth. That's gospel promise. Now the account begins one day. When this man comes up to Jesus and asks him a question, and only Luke mentions that he was a ruler, which tells us that he was probably a very prominent and influential leader, possibly in charge of the local synagogue. And so he was an eminent religious man, respected by those around him. But he comes to Jesus with this pressing question. He says, good teacher, I want to inherit eternal life. What must I do to get it? By doing what? Can I attain it? Now this question is quite revealing. As we see that this rich ruler is looking for ways to earn by his effort and his doing a reward from God to inherit eternal life in his presence. He's operating off of the mode of self-righteousness and moral achievement. He believes that he can and must find a way to present himself as being good enough for God's approval and acceptance. But the issue is this, of course, that the rich young ruler, he doesn't know himself as well as he thinks he does. His whole question is asked under the premise that he is a good, righteous man who just needs some guidance on where to channel his good deeds. He's been generally good, but he just wants Jesus to direct him to the right specific focus that would allow him to earn sufficient merit before God. But again, that's not who, who he really is. 
He doesn't understand himself to be a sinner in need of God's grace to forgive him, to renew him, and to transform him. And so Jesus goes to work to surgically cut open his heart to reveal what's really inside. And he begins by first questioning the man's question. Verse 19, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now some think that Jesus here is denying that he is God. When that's not the case at all, that's completely missing his point. Because Jesus is trying to get the ruler to think about what he just said and wonder, do you really know what you're saying? You call me good teacher. But only God is good, truly, absolutely good. No rabbis were called good teachers. So if you call me good teacher, are you saying that I am God? And if so, does that mean that you'll listen to what I tell you? That you'll obey what I teach you? You know, it's really no different from what Jesus said elsewhere. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? And so here, why do you call me good teacher? And as we'll see, not submit to my teaching as authoritative and good for your life and soul. And so from how the rest of the conversation would go, it was evident that the ruler was calling Jesus good teacher just casually. At best, as merely a form of flattery. Because he had a very loose definition of the word good in very vague and relative terms. That's why he could believe that he himself was good, a notion which Jesus then proceeds to challenge. And he does so interestingly by almost humoring this man's self-righteousness. Jesus continues in verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, don't commit murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, Well, if you're asking what one must do and accomplish in order to inherit eternal life, well, then here's a straight answer. Obey all of God's commandments, all of them, perfectly. And so Jesus lists a number of the Ten Commandments, the fifth to the ninth, to be precise, just as a representation of the whole. He's saying all of God's commandments, without fail, obey them. That's how someone can merit his way to eternal life before God, who is absolutely good. You must be good, for he is good. You must be perfectly holy, for he is perfectly holy. Listen, the point is this. Jesus is guiding this man's thoughts and ours to show There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life because you're already fallen in sin. And only when someone acknowledges this to be true can they see and receive the truth of the gospel, what Jesus has done for sinners by his life, death, and resurrection. And that based on his doing and his work, sinners who have failed to abide by God's commands, all of us, sinners can then receive the free gift of eternal life earned and inherited by Jesus Christ because he lived a life of perfect obedience on behalf of those he came to save. And he died the death of guilty sinners, taking their place on the cross. And it's on the basis of what Christ has done to inherit eternal life that we can freely receive that eternal life 
we could never earn nor have ever deserved. And so what must we do to receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of His grace? What we must do is confess that there is nothing we can do or have done, but trust that all that Christ has done, only what Christ has done, is sufficient for us. But for as long as someone insists on his own goodness, he will never be able to receive the goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And astoundingly, this rich young ruler, upon being confronted by the standard of absolute perfection of God's law and the need for flawless obedience, what did he do? He doubled down. He replied to Jesus after Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, obey all of them. And he said, verse 21, all of these I have kept from my youth. Ever since I was a wee little lad, I've done it all. My whole life has been in perfect conformity to God's commandments. I have obeyed every single one. I have never sinned. Well, he just did. He just lied. So there's one. The man doesn't know himself. This is what the self-righteous are. They don't know themselves. This rich young ruler is convinced with his own merit. But Jesus knows him. He knows the man's true spiritual condition, even that which is hidden. And so Jesus responds with these words in verse 22. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. and Give it away to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, why did Jesus say this? Well, it's not because by selling and giving away his riches, then he would earn his right to eternal life. Well, that would just go against everything that Jesus was conveying to the man. And neither was it because what Jesus said here is a universal command for everyone. I mean, Abraham was rich, but God never told him to sell everything. And several others throughout Scripture, faithful to the Lord, to whom God entrusted much wealth. He never gave such a command. But this command was specific and it was personally tailored to this rich young ruler to reveal what was hidden in his heart. And Jesus was testing his willingness to do such a thing. To, to, to trust and obey the one he called good teacher. Would he really do it? And his response would reveal everything. You remember when God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 22? Abraham, I want you to go to the mountain that I tell you to go to. And I want you there to sacrifice Isaac, your only son, whom you love. Now, listen, it was never, if you sacrifice your son then I will bless you and be your God. No, God already revealed himself to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And this was long before Isaac was ever born. God made a covenant with him, blessed him with an unconditional promise by his amazing grace. And so it has nothing to do with that, but it was that many years later in Genesis 22, God tested Abraham with the command to slay his only son to test his heart. Whom did he treasure more? His child or his God? 
And of course, Abraham, we know, he demonstrated his willingness, which is all that the Lord wanted to test. Hence, as Abraham was just about to, the Lord intervened and stopped Abraham's hand and spared Isaac because God wasn't interested in Isaac's blood and corpse. He's not like the wicked pagan gods that demand children to be sacrificed. God was testing his heart. That's all he does. That's all he looks for, the heart. In the same way, Jesus was not putting conditions on this man's entrance to God's kingdom, nor was this a universal command to every follower inasmuch as God doesn't command everyone, every believer to sacrifice their only child. But it was a personalized command of testing to bring to surface what was hidden underneath deep down. And what was it? What did it reveal? Well, verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Mark tells us explicitly that he walked away because he loved being extremely rich. He couldn't give it up. Even though Jesus promised him heavenly treasures beyond his wildest imagination, he couldn't part ways with his earthly possessions, his riches. And so it turns out that although the ruler had outwardly expressed that he was seeking to inherit eternal life, it was actually revealed that he had already found and settled his heart on his earthly life, which he treasured with all his heart. He was adamant that he had obeyed all the commandments without fail. But you see, Jesus was showing him that he had failed to fulfill even the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What everyone saw as a well-to-do man committed to moralism, God saw the real man inside, a man who was enslaved to materialism. Friends, he was an idolater. He was a worshiper of idols. He had lived his life from youth, bowing down to the idol of wealth and security and luxury. He was not as good as he thought he was. He was a practical pagan, despite having a leadership position in his Jewish community, maybe even over the synagogue. All his moralistic efforts, even spiritual ambitions, were just masking his idolatrous heart deep within. Now, I wonder if Jesus tested us in the same way, what would our instinctive response be? And what would come to the surface? I mean, really, just imagine for a moment that Jesus appears to you. He enters into your front door, sits down in your living room, sits down on the couch next to you and says, I want you to sell everything. Give it all away. And I want you to follow me wherever I tell you to go. What would you say? Would your immediate reaction be to say, ah, but he wouldn't do that. Well, let's say he did. And why not? Why couldn't he? Let's say he did. What would you say? Ah, but you know, you just, you just said that it's not a universal command, but it's one specifically designed for the rich young ruler. Well, judging by your reaction, it seems like you might not be so different from him. And so the, the same command, Jesus would personally cater to you to test your heart. Is your money, is your possessions your wealth, an idol? 
your life, your stuff, your house, your family, whatever it is. Do you have any idols before God? Are you willing to give them up if Jesus were to command you to do so? It's more than worth it. Because notice how Jesus expressly said to the man, not only a command to give up everything, but a promise of gaining everything. You will have treasure in heaven. When God calls us to let go of everything, it's never because He wants to take from us. But it's to give to us what is truly good and everlasting. And even now, the blessing in this life of freedom from enslavement to earthly riches. Relief from anxiety and fear of not having enough. Oh, how everyone who's, who pursues riches, they're the most anxious ones of them all. It's never enough. But he's giving rest that comes from thankfulness for his provision and contentment with what he has allotted to you. And a satisfaction that comes from a life that is lived for an eternal purpose and meaning. Every command of God, even the weightiest ones, are all intended to bless us and give to us our highest good and happiness. In fact, notice how when the ruler here, when he refused Jesus' command and walked away, consciously choosing rather to hold on to his earthly riches instead of gaining Christ in his kingdom, let me ask you a question. Was he happy? He chose to retain everything, keep for himself all that this world had to offer. But was there any joy and fulfillment in his heart? No, verse 23 tells us very plainly, he became very sad, exceedingly sorrowful. Now listen, he was sad not because Jesus took away his riches. He did it actually. He was sad even though he decided to keep all of his riches which means that his riches could not supply the happiness and fulfillment that he was seeking. Friends, this is the emptiness of living for this world. How dissatisfied are all who seek after wealth and worldly pleasure to fulfill them? They are all left hollow inside. And maybe people around them wish they could be them. But when they go to bed at night, there is always a void in the heart that cannot be filled apart from coming to Jesus Christ and following Him. This is eternal life, to know the one true God through Jesus Christ, His Son. And the very eternal life that the ruler was seeking was right in front of Him, inviting Him to come and follow Him, to come and belong to Him and enter His kingdom. But He could not because He would not part ways from the mirage of His earthly kingdom He held dear. Do you see how enslaved the ruler was to his riches? He was ruled by his possessions more than he knew. And so when Jesus saw that this man had become sad and walked away, he said to all, in verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. It's that difficult. Riches are are an enormous, peculiar stumbling block. Now some may be tempted here to say, well, how big is the needle? How small is the camel? No, 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 you're missing the point. Camels are enormous. Have you seen one? 
I've been on one. When we went to Israel some years ago and we were in Jericho in the parking lot, I don't know what a camel was doing there, but a man had a camel and for $5, I think it was, he said you could ride on it. So I paid $5, I got on the camel and just from the camel getting up on its four feet, that thing almost catapulted me to the third heaven. I mean, it's enormous. The thing's basically like a giraffe with scoliosis. They're enormous. It cannot go into an eye of a needle. Even if Jesus said here, even if you were to say, it's easier for a mouse to go into an eye of a needle, the point still stands that it is impossible. Yes, what Jesus is saying is, it is impossible for a rich person to enter God's kingdom because the bondage of sin is too strong. For a sinner to break himself free from it. I mean, this is true for everyone, no matter what the sins that enslave them. But how much more true for the rich person because he is made to believe more than anyone else that he needs nothing. And whatever he thinks he needs, he can get it all for himself. Those who are self-sufficient are the furthest from God, least interested in the eternal promises of God. That's why it is utterly impossible for them to enter God's kingdom. They are enslaved. And we do not have the power in ourselves to break free from the bondage of sin. And perhaps just like us in our reaction hearing this, those that day who heard it, they said, who then can be saved? Who has any hope? I mean, how do we here in the Bay Area, filthy rich by global standards, have any hope of truly belonging to the kingdom of God? Do you realize that when Jesus is talking about rich persons, he's talking about all of us? Well, thanks be to God, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible only with God. God is able to save even the rich. He is able to set free all who are in bondage to the love of money. How? Well, it's the same way it goes for everyone. It's by the grace of God the Father, through His Son, and the power of His Spirit at work in the heart of sinners to transform them from within. We'll consider first the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What does He do? What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts the world of sin and righteousness. And so God's word, breathed out by His Spirit, reveals to us plainly the grievous idolatry of materialistic attachment and how He sees through it all, even when it is hidden underneath many layers of outward moralism, self-justification, even our endeavor to be involved in the local community of faith, just like this ruler, he is able to expose the real sin that lies underneath, the corruption that is in our hearts. But the Spirit of God convicts the world of sin. Why? Not to preach condemnation and hopeless judgment but to call the world to simply confess that sin, to bring them to repentance that they might find life. You see, it's not that this rich ruler needed to prove himself worthy of entering into God's kingdom by selling his riches. 
But the rich man needed to be honest with himself and with God about the idols that gripped him. That truthfully, he was more interested in his own earthly kingdom than God's heavenly kingdom. And that despite how others esteemed him as a great leader who exemplified moral excellence, he was actually immoral before God and God alone. He was a worshiper of idols who needed to be forgiven, restored, and renewed in true righteousness. And so this whole conversation, this whole interaction could have gone very differently if he had come to Jesus saying, Good teacher, how can I be set free from my love of money? Good teacher, how can I be forgiven of my idolatry? Everyone else thinks I'm a good religious man, but from my youth, I have time and time again seen that I am unable to obey even the first commandment. I am a wretched man, good teacher. Can you save me? Oh, if Jesus heard that, how pleased he would have been to rescue his soul then and there. Of course, that's not what this rich young ruler asked. But even so, understand this, that it was out of unimaginable grace And compassion for this rich young ruler that Jesus said what he said to him. Because it was to show this man his true condition and bring him to his knees that he might confess his sin and receive forgiveness and eternal life. In fact, when Jesus heard him say and make the claim that he had kept all of God's commandments, It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, go and sell all that you have. The command that would expose his wretched darkness and sin, it was spoken with great love for his soul to show him and bring him to his knees. Friends, some of you here, the Spirit of Christ is so lovingly doing the same thing, revealing your sinfulness to you. But it's not to condemn you into hopeless judgment, but it is to bring you to himself, to impart and elicit the response of repentance and faith that you may come to him and follow him into eternity. And find life. And as God by His Spirit brings about the conviction of sin and repentance, He opens our eyes to see the majesty of Jesus Christ. How He was so worth following no matter what the cost. You know, I think it's interesting that Peter chimes in and says in verse 28, See, we have left our homes, literally, saying everything we own. We left everything and followed you. If you know, Jesus called Peter to follow him multiple times, not just once. You can see it when you synthesize the testimonies of the Gospel of John and Mark and Luke. But Peter insisted on remaining as a fisherman. He was, he was kind of stubborn. It, it took a while. Because he said, I want to be a fisherman. He, he knew Jesus. He, he believed Jesus to be the Messiah. But he wanted to stay as a fisherman. He, he wasn't yet ready to give everything up and follow him. Maybe it's because, possibly, 
the fishing business was very lucrative where he was stationed at Capernaum. And among many other things, Peter was fearful and he was kind of crazy. But the final time that Jesus called Peter to follow him was in Luke chapter 5. When Peter was at work by the Sea of Galilee, cleaning his nets after he caught nothing all night, which was kind of embarrassing because he was a professional fisherman. But I guess he just had a bad day. But on that day, Jesus had, kind of like for this rich young ruler, Jesus had for Peter a personally custom-tailored miracle to win over his heart. And what happened was Jesus got into Peter's boat and told him to set out into the water. And Peter said, okay. And then Jesus, as they were all in the water, this was midday. Jesus said, hey, let's, let's try again. Peter, why don't you let down your nets for a catch? Now Peter goes, uh, you know, Jesus, we tried all night and we caught nothing. And I mean, I think I know what I'm doing. I'm the fisherman. You're the carpenter. Okay, if you say so. And again, part of Peter's hesitance was this was midday. It's the worst time to fish. It's impossible to catch any fish. But when Peter let down the nets at Jesus' command, swarms of fish rushed in to the point where the nets were breaking. And immediately when Peter saw this, he didn't go, Woohoo! I caught my caught my fish for today. But immediately he fell at Jesus' knees, confessing his sin. And when Jesus said, don't be afraid, come follow me, Peter finally and really did. He put down the nets and followed Jesus. Now why? What was it about this miracle that just struck the heart of Peter? It's because through this miracle, Jesus was telling and showing Peter, the professional fisherman. He was saying, Peter, I know better than you even in the areas of your expertise. I've come to be your master, not only in the areas of your life where you feel weak, but also in the areas where you feel strong and self-sufficient, where you feel that you know better. And that changed Peter's life because he saw and he believed, he witnessed that Jesus really can be trusted with everything your wealth, your family, your job, your future, your life. Jesus really does know better. You see, this is what supernaturally enables a rich person, even a rich person, to lay it all at Jesus' feet. Seeing the glory of the greater master, his praiseworthiness, his trustworthiness, And he is so worthy of our unreserved trust, not just because he is right, but because he is good. Peter says, Lord, we left everything to follow you. But immediately Jesus responds in verse 29. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Again, it goes to show. We never give anything to God in the end. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? But from him and through him and to him are all things. Whatever you have given up in this life will be 
reimbursed 10,000 times over such that you'll look back in eternity and you'll say, you know what? I never gave anything up. I only gained everything. In the words of Samuel Rutherford, 17th century Scottish pastor, one day in heaven will pay you, yea, overpay your blood, bonds, sorrow, and sufferings. It would trouble an angel's understanding to lay the account of that surplus of glory which eternity can and will give you. This is the Father's promise through the lips of His Son. But notice also, notice carefully how Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who left house and left everything for the sake of God's kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. God promises to give and repay even in this lifetime. How? What does he mean? That we'll all become millionaires and drive Lamborghinis to church? No, but isn't this simply the promise of Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you. He knows what you need. He is not trying to make you homeless. He promises to supply all that you need to live a life of magnifying Him. You need a job? He knows. He knows what you need. You want and need a spouse? Yeah. All you single people? You think He doesn't know? He knows. He's preparing Him or her. You need a house, a home, whatever, whatever it might be. So you don't need to beseech the God of money or rely on the idol of self-sufficiency to live your life, but your Father's promise frees you to be able to live for the singular ambition of seeking His will above everything else and being governed by His principles and ordering everything in your life around the will of God. God's promise is enabling you and empowering you, liberating you to do such a thing. And as I look back, I know this to be so true in my own life. And I have been amazed by the ways God has abundantly provided when prioritizing the things of His kingdom, even though I had no idea what was to come of it. Even when at the time, it seemed like a big sacrifice or there was a lot of uncertainty or it seemed like it was a harder thing to do to do what was right in his eyes and to think always by the level of biblical principles not simply pragmatics but every single time I come to see in due time how much wiser he is how faithful he is how much he provided all that I've needed and how much I've never lacked anything And it makes me want to trust Him more. And it proves to me how much better it really is. The life of following Jesus, no matter where He takes me, 
rather than following myself or chasing worldly ambitions. I am so persuaded that he is really the better Lord over my life than I am, over my own. And with each passing year, I'm convinced more than ever that I can never and will never outgive God. Church, let us guard our hearts and minds with these sure promises of God. Let us, by the, the assurance of His grace, resolve to not be stingy people, hoarding. You don't have to be... You don't have to have a lot of money to be greedy. Do you know that? Hoarding is the same mentality of loving money. But whatever our lot, wherever God has placed us, whatever He has assigned us, let us resolve to, to grow, to give more of all that He has given to us in the first place for the sake of the kingdom of God and the ministry of the gospel through His church. That we might not be ruled by money, but to rule over it. And subdue it in service to our God. And learn to be generous in the likeness of our Heavenly Father, who is the God of infinite generosity. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, You are the Almighty, infinite, all-sufficient Father. The One who is unceasingly good to his children. We thank you that as your people, we do not have to enslave ourselves to the bondage of mammon, the God of money, but that we could live freely trusting in your faithful provision, your providential care, Oh Lord, we confess just the weakness of our faith. We confess that so often we do fall into these snares of wanting to provide for ourselves and procuring for ourselves the semblance of security. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would help us to see the true majesty of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And how happy we really are as we leave everything behind and follow Him, no matter where He tells us to go, no matter what He tells us to do. And Father, we thank You for the assurance of Your goodness to us as we see even in and ultimately in Your Son giving Himself for us as we're reminded in Your Word that He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not graciously give us all things with Him? And so we ask that as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, that by this ordinary bread and cup, which so tangibly represents the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, given for us, we ask that You would strengthen our faith, and that you would confirm those promises to us, and that you would help us to receive them by faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.